My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford observer and a military police officer. I've spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. Guys, this week in the studio, Don Bentley. Uh, man, this one's going to be a good one. Uh, you've got a lot of stuff going on right now. You've got a lot of fires to, to, I don't know if you'd say put out, or you've got a lot I'm going on. Them. <laughs> I do, I do. This has been a, a crazy, crazy year, and it's it's crazy. It's great to be busy, but, um, man, it's been wild. So, yeah. Do you ever, uh, do you ever get used to it? Um, I don't know used to it. You know, for me, like we were talking a little bit in the, in the pre-show, mm -hmm. I'm kind of an overnight, uh, success in the sense that it took me 17 years and three books that didn't sell to <laughs> finally sell without sanctioning it in a two book deal. And the way that publishing works is it happens really slow at first. So when, when we sold without sanction, it was still about 18 months or something before the book first came out. And so, you know, you're all excited about it and your family and friends are all stoked. And then they start to wonder, did you really sell a book or is this just, you know, are you just making this up? And then the book kind of, it comes out and that's really great. But this year um, I've had the outside man that's come out. Um, I turned in the, the Tom Clancy book, which is um, target acquired and that comes out in two months. And so I'm, I'm frantically doing edits for that. At the same time, I'm writing the third Matt book, which is due in July. And so it went from being a very, very slow pace and people wondering if I'm even a writer to now nobody wants to hear about it anymore. I don't, I don't, I don't get invited to do anything anymore because I turn it down. I'm like, I got to work. I got to work. I got to work. But it's, it's a good problem to have. And like I said, I, I feel extremely fortunate. So it, it doesn't get old and I think the the part that is the most fun, even though you're not supposed to, is I'm the knucklehead that goes and reads all the reviews on Amazon and Goodreads and everything. And and some of those, I I actually I know Jack Carr. He he reads them aloud, like the worst ones. I take pictures of them and show my wife, and I'm like, look how much this guy hates me. Like he hates me so much. He spent three paragraphs telling. I mean, you got to respect that if he hates me that much. But awesome. I, in, <laughs> but I think you know some of the coolest thing is seeing people who don't normally read this genre, and they're like, "Hey, my friend gave it to me." And a lot of them are are women um, because women aren't as big a readers in this genre. And when you see that, like those are the ones I love that say, "Hey, I wouldn't normally read this, but man, this book grabbed me, and and maybe I'll, I'll give the second one a try." And, and that's probably the most rewarding part of it for sure. I would think it would be. I mean, people that don't normally read that genre, because it's, I don't know if I would say it's a very uh, niche market, because I don't really think it right. is, but it's it's definitely, an, I guess, an acquired taste. Sure. I mean, yeah, you, I think that's true. If, if you don't normally read these kind of books, watch these kind of movies, because when I say that your, your books are action, from front to back. I mean, let's talk about the outside man for just a second. I don't want to give too much away in it, but I mean, from like page maybe one and a half, it's, it's going full throttle already. 
Yeah, and that has its own. So it's it's funny. I had um, you and I were talking a little bit about the show or before the show about different things that I do and why did I do them. And so I was fortunate enough to have um, a friend of mine I met after I got out of the army. I had the GI Bill, and so I went back and got an MFA, and I got an MFA in this program that um, specializes in genre fiction. So it's unabashedly, we're going to help you write commercial fiction. And I'd written at the time two books that hadn't sold yet and was working on my third. And, you know, your writing's kind of this crazy thing where you're always trying to figure out what is it, what you have to be, you have to have persistence to keep writing a book, but you also have to start to understand what is it that I'm not doing that other people are and and that that I'm not getting published and and they are. And so I'd met um, a really good friend of mine who was my critique partner. And back then there were still malls and there were bookstores in the malls. And so he's like, come with me. And so we went into the bookstore and he went over to the, you know, the genre I write in the military espionage thriller genre. And he pulled three books off the shelf that were bestsellers at that time. And he's like, what happens in the first chapter of each of these books? And so you read it and each of those books has a gun that's in the first chapter, right? And and most of them have a shootout or something like that in the first chapter, something that happens. And so part of it is, is trying to figure out what your readers want and what they're used to it and being able to give them that. And then at the same time, and I appreciate what you said about the outside man, and that was kind of a, an intentional thing on my part to bring to bring some action um, closer to the front of the book. But at the same time, if your book is nothing but gunfight or fight scene, fight scene, fight scene, that loses its its effect on the reader too, right? And so part of what you got to do is figure out what's that balance. Like what is it that you can do that keeps the reader guessing, but you don't give them whiplash or that every other scene is another gunfight. And then it, it starts to lose its, it starts to lose its um, resonance with their, with the reader because they get numb to it. Right. And so I appreciate you saying that. And I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to walk the line between those two. I I think you did it uh, very well. I will say about the uh, main character. He is a, Mm -hmm. would you, and, and this is the last part I want to talk about books for right now, but would you say that your, your main character, uh, Matthew or Maddie or Matt or the 13 other ways that he's called in the books. I don't know if I would say he has an anger issue, but he definitely is right there on the surface of it. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things, and again, I was a fan of the genre way, way before I was able to write in it. And I think one of the things that, people read this genre especially for is that sense both of escapism like you do with any good books and then you want you want to project yourself into that protagonist and you want to you wish you could be them number one and number two you want them to do the things you wish you could do so whether it's you wish you were faster at a joke than you are and so you want somebody that's witty that way and I think the second part of it is you want somebody who has that iron iron sense of moral code but also is not afraid at all to act on that right and so i think i think to your point about matt he certainly is is much quicker on the trigger as you if you were than i would be but i think what's so appealing about him and appealing 
you know, um, the Mitch Rapp series that Vince Flynn wrote first and now Kyle Mills is, is another great example where Mitch Rapp is an incredibly violent protagonist, but he has this iron sense of right and wrong that he never deviates from. And I think I think readers want that or at least willing to go along with a, a protagonist that's very, very visceral if they understand why he or she is doing what they do and in that protagonist or that character keeps to that moral code, if you will, because that's, you know, how many times have you wished that you could do something that in polite society is not accepted, but is you think is perfectly acceptable in that situation or, or even more from that where you see horrible things and things gone wrong. And you're like, man, I wish somebody would have been there to do X, Y, or Z. And I think that's what maybe good books provide um, for you. And, and that's certainly what Matt's modeled after. Well, let's talk about a little further back than uh, just your writing, because uh, it's not like you, you know, you say that Matt might be quicker on the trigger than you or I, or that you might want to be more like him, but you, you're no slouch. Uh, you've done some stuff. You've been some places. You've done some things. Uh, you were an Apache helicopter pilot, which is amazing yep. in and of itself. Uh, South Korea, Germany, Texas, you were deployed to Afghanistan, uh, you were a troop commander, you received a bronze star, an air medal with a V. Yeah. And and then people don't that might not know you or know your full story. And then you don't go, Yeah, I'm done with all that. Then you decide, yeah, I'll get out of that and I'll go do this FBI thing. And then I'll join a SWAT team and then I'll do these other things. So <laughs> I think that you might be selling yourself a little bit short on the action in your life, maybe because you slowed down a little bit when you're writing these books. But let's talk a little bit about that. Like, that's a lot to sure. draw on for these books. And you can see it come through. Uh, there's a lot of, um, I guess you would call it like military humor that guys that are in yeah. the military, or girls yeah. that are in the military would, it yeah. comes through, it resonates a little more with them. Like, I, yeah. I tell a lot of people that hate the TV show MASH. Well, if you were in the mm -hmm. military, you would understand a lot more of the jokes yep. and you would understand yep. a lot more yep. what they're talking about. So it, it resonates with you a little more. So with yep. your past, is that where you draw from or is that just a part of where you draw from or how does that work? Yeah, it certainly is. Um, I think all of the above, I guess. So, so it's certainly having been served in the military or having served in the military, there are aspects of it that you internalize that, that come very natural. Um, so because and I know we were talking before you served in combat arms as well. So things like that you have um, done before either in training or in combat, um, those scenes are very easy for me to write in the book, like, you know, doing radio calls, things where, you know, I have a, a, a guy on the ground that's potentially talking to aircraft or something like that. Like that, that feels very, very natural to me because I've done it a bunch of times and I certainly pull from that. And the gallows humor you talk about before, I think that's common both in the military as well as in law enforcement and first responders. You know, folks who for a living have to face uh, horrific situations one of the coping mechanisms that you do with that is you kind of develop that sense of gallows humor that says, you know, I can't believe we're in this spot right now and we're getting shot at. So I'm going to make a joke about it because otherwise we're all going to sit here and, you know, quake inside at the fact that there are bullets that are whizzing by our head. And so some of that for sure 
is experience that I drew on um, from the military and the FBI. The other part of it, I said, you know, when I was doing press for Without Sanction, um, one of the radio interviewers as a throwaway question at the end of the interview said, are you Matt Drake? And I said, you know, I am, <laughs> I am absolutely not Matt Drake. Let me, let me clear that up for you. But what I told her, and, and I think is, is true, is that I have stood in the same room with him before. And so what, what I tell folks is that my background is, is interesting, but the real benefit was the people that I got to meet as part of that. So whether that was in the Army, when I was an Apache pilot in Afghanistan, every time a new special operations um, team would rotate into country, we would take those guys and in Bagram, Afghanistan, there's kind of a river that, that is on the other side of the post. And we would go across the river and we would practice doing what's called CCAs or close combat attacks with them so that they could get used to calling in gunships. And so you got to meet a lot of those folks and kind of get in their heads some and see how they viewed the world. And at the same time, when I was in the FBI, my first job uh, was to be on what's called the human squad there. And so my job was to run and recruit what we call sources or what folks in the intelligence community call assets. And so you can do that on a wide range of topics. You can do it all the way from criminal things where if you're, you know, running an operation against a, 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 um, a drug organization, for instance, you want to know what's going on inside there. And so you, you might try and recruit a source um, from within that organization to, the other opposite thing, because the FBI has such a broad scope um, that it's allowed to play in, if you will, we're much more counterintelligence and foreign intelligence things. So what are the national level questions that the government has? You know, things that could be anything as, as very, very broad of what's, you know, the WMD status or, or, you know, what's the status of nuclear missiles in Korea to much more narrower, you know, who is this particular group in Syria? Um, who's who's working against the Assad regime. And so your job is to, again, run and recruit sources that have access to that kind of information. And so in, in me doing that job here in the United States, I got to rub shoulders with a lot of folks from other members of the intelligence community. And so I, I modeled Matt Drake after one of those um, folks, or, or not a particular person rather, but I made him a case officer for the Defense Intelligence Agency, which is, you know, another agency um, who does a mission that's very, very similar to the CIA, but it's for the military instead. And so, you know, having that part of your background, I think both gives veracity to your writing in some extent, but but the other part is that it put me in touch with a lot of folks who were very, very interesting, and I could pull bits and pieces from them, you know, as a writer, it's almost like you you always have this tape recorder that's running in your brain and you're like, oh man, that's really good. I'm gonna pull that and use that in a story. Or, you know, and without sanction, there's a scene where Matt does a hey-ho insertion into Syria. And so a good friend of mine I met um, after I got out of the FBI, I worked for a while for a company that helped to develop and in, in, um, market technology to the, to the special operations community. And so, most of my coworkers were from the intelligence community or from the special operations community. And one of my very good friends is a guy named Jason Beefley, who's a retired sergeant major and spent the majority of his career in Delta Force. And so when I knew I wanted to do this hey-ho operation, I'm like, hey, Jason, will you read this and kind of give me your thoughts on it? And so 
it's always things like that. I think the really good writers, because there's certainly people you got um, Jack Carr, I think, in the background there behind you. And then, you know, Brad Taylor's a fantastic writer, too. And those guys have backgrounds that more lend themselves directly to you to what they write. But then if you also look at maybe some of the the big names in our genre too, people like Daniel Silver or Vince Flynn or Kyle Moore, Mills or Brad Thor, none of those guys served. None of them were ninjas. None of them were law enforcement. But I would have to assume that they, much like I did, kind of cultivated this network of experts that they could go back and ask. And so part of it is having that background or access to it, um, as you kind of alluded to. But I think the other part, and just as important as if not more, is that sense of story. Like, what is it I'm going to try and tell that's different, that somebody hasn't before, that I can bring to this genre? And you use the details to add veracity to that story, but you still have to have that story, I think, to begin with. Yeah, and I would agree with you. And and, and it's interesting that uh, you mentioned about those guys having never served. Now I served, I was never in combat in the years that I was sure. in. Uh, and so it's interesting to talk to people like you because of course we share a law enforcement background and we can, mm-hmm. you know, go in depth about that kind of stuff, but to hear the combat stories that, that come back across. And I, I interview a lot of people on the show where they talk about that and it's yep. a, it's a different mentality and, and, and I can't say for in combat, I can say for in law enforcement and things, you know, of that nature, it's a different world and you can't really understand that unless you talk to the people that do it. And it's absolutely, it's a good thing that, that they do their research because if they weren't able to do that research or they weren't able to talk to the people that were there, I think you would get a totally different outcome. And when you say, you know, you have to do something different, Mm-hmm. That seems like a very hard task, first of all, because how many ways can you talk about uh, <laughs> how many ways can you make a story about killing yeah. someone or kidnapping? And and yeah. I thought it was interesting. I watched an interview with you when you talked about the human trafficking for the outside. Mm-hmm. And you said, yeah. you yeah. know, I never worked in that area. I talked to some people. Yeah. You, you had you had uh, been briefed at the FBI Academy and things like yeah. that, but you yeah. had never yeah. worked that area. So you got a hold of someone that that had been part of that. And it yep. really comes through in the story because I, I I believe that that gives it more emotion. It gives it more of that that physical feel to it that yep. you're you're not just saying crazy things because if if people yep. have worked it or they know about it, it 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 will seem fake to them. Yeah, absolutely that's right. And I think you know, I think that's what um when I talk with Brad, Brad Taylor's a, a very good friend of mine and, and I get to talk books with him and, and stuff like that a lot. And and what he will always say is come back to you because he gets a lot of praise, deservedly so, for, you know, writing about incredible plots and writing with great detail about how things. But he's like, man, it's characters, it's characters that keep writers or keep readers coming back from book to book. It's the characters. And I think. I think that's true. And I think it also dovetails into what you're saying from the standpoint of what makes characters real is that you you start to understand what they think and why they feel what they feel. And then then they become real to you. Then they're not just words on a page anymore. It's something you resonate with. And I and I think the sex trafficking thing was the same thing. And, you know, for me, I look this up every time because I want to make sure I get the book um, exactly right. But like most folks in 
in um, America, I watched, you know, what was happening with ISIS in Iraq and Syria, you kind of half dumbfounded and half, but there was that distance, right? I didn't know any of those people. I didn't, you know, certainly you want to resonate with the suffering of your fellow human being, but you hear about those things, but you're still able to keep that distance between what's actually happening and you. And then when I was writing The Outside Man and I, and I thought that human trafficking or sex trafficking was going to play a part in it, I read this book called The Last Girl by Nadia Murad, who was a Yazidi and who was sex trafficked um, by ISIS in Iraq. And when I read that, like it just ripped away that comfortable space between me and that and that thing, because here is this girl, you know, this woman who it actually happens to who's brave enough to write a memoir in painstaking detail of what she went through. And now, you know, it's like in your heart, you 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 just hurt for that person. And so I think that's part of what makes writing real to the reader and or makes characters that are more than just, you know, cardboard figures because because suddenly they become real to you. And the way that you make them real, I think, or one of the ways is that you have to have those details that add veracity to it so that when a reader reads it, they're like, okay, that isn't just your idea of a character. It isn't just a sketch. It isn't something that you just came up with. That's like a, a living human being that you've put down in those words. And I think if you can do that, not only does it evoke that emotion with a reader that you want, but again, you to quote Brad, you know, what readers come back for over and over again are the characters. And so if you can make those compelling characters and compelling situations and I think you've got something that that lasts more than a book or two, hopefully. In speaking about that, uh, when that character is introduced in The Outside Man, like I said, I don't want to go into mm -hmm. a lot of detail, but yep. uh, how do you how do you write those things and make a reader feel uncomfortable because it's an uncomfortable thing to talk about and not be yeah. off put from the, uh, from the subject. Yeah. That's a great question. Um, when I was, so when I went through the FBI Academy every so often, maybe it was every other Thursday or something. I don't, I don't know what they would gather us all in the auditorium after, after class was over in the evening and, and there would be a group of agents that would come and brief a case, you know, and usually it was a, a, a big case that, you know, it could be, you know, a major case that was, you know, a crazy bank, um, bank robbery or a big criminal organization or something. The one that I actually remember and, and can't get out of my head was this tragic story about two young kids who were brother and sister who were kidnapped, who were abused over a period of time, who the, the brother was actually killed at one point. And, you know, they rescued the sister um, partly because a waitress at a, a restaurant saw something and wasn't afraid to go and, and call the cops. And, and they did it. But but when they laid out that case and what these two kids had gone through, I'll never, I'll never be able to forget that for the rest of my life. Like it was this visceral, awful thing. And so, and, and so I think, I think what you have to do when you're reading is you can't necessarily give your readers that because that's something, you know, honestly, part of some of the times I think if I could have skipped that day, 
I would have skipped it and never and still never still think about, you know, that brother and sister and everything they went through. But that amount of pain and what happens, you have to be brave as a writer and you have to be brave enough, I think, to put things in your book that are going to make you uncomfortable and will in turn make the reader uncomfortable because that's what you respond to on a a primal level, right? Or other people's pain is other people's joy is, is things like that. And there can't be, there can't, people talk about in writing that your protagonist, your main character can only be as big as your antagonist is in the opposite one, right? So if you're going to have Superman as your protagonist, then you have to have this evil villain who is his equal, right? In order to make it actually interesting for the, for the, reader for them to believe that your protagonist is going to be in jeopardy or believe that something bad could happen. And I think that's the same thing in the book is that you have to put things in there that are make you scared or make you uncomfortable as you write it in there so that you get that same reaction for the reader so that when things, if it's a happy ending, it really feels to the reader like it's a happy ending because they were with you at this dark place earlier in the story, right? But I think some of what we have to do, and this is a different, different for every genre and different every writer, is how much of that awful story goes in or not, right? How much of it, enough to make it real, but unless you're you're writing horror, unless that's your intent, you know, you don't want the reader to put down your book and say, that really resonated me, but I wish I'd never picked up this book to begin with, right? And so that's that's the part I think that's it's very, very hard. Um line to walk but i think you know another another good friend of mine is is a writer named nick petrie who writes the the peter ash series the first book of those and the drifter and and when i had written three books that hadn't been published yet you know i i had tried to get each of them sold and and couldn't and and was you know at the point where i thought i was going to quit and not be a writer anymore you know nick grabbed me and he said he said I had to write three books that didn't sell to your me two years ago. Go back and finish your fourth book and this will be the one. And, and it was the one. But one of the things that he said to me is in part of that coaching thing is that it, a, in a really good book, the novelist is trying to answer a question for her himself in the pages of that book as they're writing. Right. And so in order to do that, you have to put what keeps you up at night in that book. You have to put what makes you uncomfortable. You have to put what your fears are. And I think if you can do that, the reader resonates with it again. And and it feels, they might not be able to articulate why, but it feels real to them. It feels like it's more than just a book, but at the same time, certainly you don't want to, you don't want to overwhelm them. You don't want to put, you know, such dark and horrible things that, they say, yes, this was real to me, but I wished I'd never read this story to begin with. And so that's a hard thing to figure out. And I think most people probably err. I know I did for the first couple of books that I wrote that didn't sell probably too much on the other side where you're like, ah, I'm going to keep this light. I'm going to keep it on the surface. I'm not going to be brave enough to put me in that book. And, and I think if you can do that and if you do do that, it changes what people say about your book for sure. Well, I think that you do it very well in your books, though, because uh, Matt is very much of a smartass. So I noticed mm-hmm. several times throughout the book, um, when it was getting very dark, there was always yeah. a little tiny sliver of, 
here's a joke to break this up or here's a smart ass yep. answer to break this up. And I think that you yep. do it very well. Thank when you. you talk about writing, you know, three books that don't, don't succeed, <laughs> they don't sell, yep. they don't get published. They don't, it, yep. it's a real kick in the nuts. I mean, and that's the only way yeah. to explain it. And so yep. you, you had had success all through, I would say all through your life, you, you, you know, yeah. in, in things that you did in the military and the FBI, you're by now you're a grown man yep. and people are yep. telling you, you're no good at this. Get out of here. <laughs> Stop. You know what I'm saying? How, yeah, absolutely. How, how do you go to that and go, I mean, because I feel the same kind of frustrations in the show that I do. I, I, it's so funny that yep. you say you got to look for what other people are doing that you're not doing or whatever. And yep. I look at some yep. of these things and I see these, you know, I'll interview someone and someone bigger will interview the same person. They'll have 30,000 views in a day. Mm -hmm. I'll have 15 in a day. Yep. 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 How do you deal with it though? How do you continue going back to the grindstone and yeah. going, you know what? It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Cause you got to think positive, but sometimes, yeah. like I said, it's a real kick in the nuts. It is. And I, so I think a couple things, excuse me. So, so one thing when folks ask me who haven't been, been, sold the book yet, you know, wh what's the secret to, or, or what do you say? And, and, and I preface it by saying, I'll, I'll tell you what I think, but I've also, you know, I'm, I'm three books into this, not 15 or 30. So go, go ask Kyle Mills that same question or Mark Graney. But I think what's unique or maybe not as unique to writing, because I'm sure in, in, in your business and podcasting and interviewing, it's, it's very similar too, is that you, you have to have persistence in that, you get back up on on the horse every time and you try it again and you try it again and you try it again but the second half of that is you have to you have to be able to take an objective look at why you failed right because if you from a writing perspective if you write the same book over and over and over and over again that's kind of the definition of insanity right that's absolutely it didn't sell the first three times so why is it not selling now and so for me you know, I, I did I did go back and get an MFA, but I think what really helped me were two things was that critique partner, a guy named John Dixon that I met before, who was farther along in the writing process than I was and could look at my work and say, here is what you're doing wrong. Like your pacing is too slow or your this is too muddled or you have, you know, your point of view doesn't feel authentic enough or something like it's so important to have, because if you look at a normal trade, you know, if you're going to be a plumber or an electrician or, or something like that, a welder, most of those have like an apprenticeship journeyman uh, and then a master, even before we were talking about law enforcement. When I was an FBI agent, you're a probationary agent for a period of time and you have a training agent in law enforcement. I imagine it's, it's very much the same. And the reason for that is because you have to have the persistence to show up every day but you don't know yet what it is that you don't know. And so you have somebody who's further along in that path that can say, love your initiative. Here's what you're missing right here. Here are the things that you have to do. And so I think getting that both of those two pieces together, never giving up and getting better at your craft are what allow you to succeed. Now, what 
keeps you from giving up, which is kind of what you asked. One of the biggest next to my MFA, the, the biggest kind of inflection point in my writing career was going to this thing called Thriller Fest, which is a writer's conference. It's held every year in New York. And it was founded by people like Gail Lins and Lee Child and um, Steve Barry and these folks who are luminaries in their in their craft. And they will sit at a bar, you know, they teach classes in this thing and you can sit at a bar and buy somebody a drink who is farther along in the process than you are and pick their brain on how to do this. Like, what is it? Not, not necessarily, hey, read my pages and tell me what you think, but what is it that was for you that changed from the three books that didn't sell to the one that didn't? What was it that you did differently? And I think that's what's so hard is having finding that community of people, number one, who are a little bit farther on the path than you are and can help steer you in, the ne- in that direction. And at the same time, that that brotherhood or sisterhood or family who can say, get back up and write the next book. And that was, you know, what Nick Petrie said to me, I, w- I was very, very close to quitting because I'd done the two books that hadn't sold. I actually went back when I got my MFA your thesis is a book. And so I wrote a third book and I thought that was going to be it. And nobody wanted that one either. And I was (laughs) like, maybe this just isn't for me, you know, maybe I'm just not good enough. And so, you know, I had a lot of people who like my wife who are like, no, you can do it. And it's, and, and it wasn't until Nick Petrie who had, who had been successful, but also been where I was and wasn't successful said, you're good enough to do this. Go back home and write another book. And I did. And that was the one that sold. And so I think it's so important to have that community around you who can both help guide you when it's necessary and frankly, give you a kick in the pants when it's necessary and say, man, you got to get back up, get on that horse and write another book because you're never going to sell the book that you don't write. But I think and again, I, I lots of, of folks, writer Twitter is awesome. There are so many great writers that talk to people on Twitter and, and help them out. And and I think to me, there's there are too many folks who have just the persistence thing, but they, they haven't incorporated the second, how do I get better at my craft thing? Because you can you can write more books and write more books and write more books. But if I hadn't figured out what I was doing wrong with those first three, I would have written three more that hadn't sold and still been mad and still been like, why won't anybody buy my books? And it's hard and it's hard to figure that stuff out. But but the answers are out there if you're willing to go find them. If you're willing to go to Thriller Fest and sign up for some classes, if you're willing to go, you got to, at the same time you're being persistent, have that constant dedication to your craft and getting better at your craft. Otherwise, you never will, right? Nobody expects somebody who's, an apprentice plumber to do it for a week and suddenly be, you know, a journeyman and be able to go on their own. But for writing or, or things, you know, probably with podcasting, people have that idea where I did it two or three times. I should be successful now. Well, not yet. You're still an apprentice, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Now I look back at some of my stuff and I go, wow, that was really bad. (laughs) Do you look look back at those three books and go at any one of the three and go, wow, that really sucked. What was I thinking? Yeah. I, so a funny story about that is I still have, I was looking around at my desk to see if I have it. I have an envelope full of rejections from editors for those first three books. And some of them were good rejections and when you when I was asking when you were asking before about how you keep going, 
I used to page through those good rejections and read them over and over again where they'd say, hey, you're almost there, but not yet. Because that was all I had, right? Like that was all I had to keep me going. Now, as far as where those books are, people are always like, hey, you think you could dig those out and get them sold now? And I was like, no, those books are exactly where they need to be in a trunk somewhere, never to see the, the light of day again. And I say that, you know, only half in jest, because I also think if I look at those three books, I can see my growth as a writer. And so the first book I read, you know, my kind of gateway drug to this genre was Tom Clancy. And the first book um, of his I ever read, my my friend, when I was 13 or 14 down the street, he gave me the the uh, his copy of Red Storm Rising, which was, you know, a retelling of World War Three, or I guess not a retelling since thankfully World War Three hasn't happened. But his <laughs> version of World World quick, III. I was like, shit, did I miss <laughs> yeah, something? Yeah. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> and so um but it was very much like epic a military thriller. And so the first book I wrote was a lot like that. I had just been, I was stationed in um, South Korea. And so I was like, I'll write a, a book about a third Korean war. And so I, I learned some things on that, but it certainly wasn't um, marketable. And so then I, when I deployed to Afghanistan. While I was in Afghanistan, I'm like, I'll write a book about hunting terrorists in Afghanistan. And so that was the second book. And so it got tighter. It was a more focused story, but it still wasn't where it needed to be. And then for my third book, and this was another great thing about the MFA program is they really, really encourage you to experiment. Like you're here for a year and a half, try something completely different. And I thought, you know what? I've written these two books that were broader in scope. And I, and by that time you were, you're asking me before the show, cause Matt is, a first-person protagonist who's who's kind of funny and and a little different from military thrillers traditionally. And I'd read a bunch of Nelson DeMille's John Corey books, and I'm kind of like that, not as as funny as Matt is or, or as funny as John Corey is. But I thought, you know what? I'll try something different. I'm going to try and write this first-person protagonist and then make it funny. Because when I read the first John Corey book, which was Plum Island, I got done with it. I was like man, I would read about that guy going to the gas station and pumping gas in his car because he's so funny. And it's so, and and so I thought, you know, if I can get readers to come back for that, I'll try it. And so the first book of mine that ever had Matt in it, and it wasn't Matt, the same Matt as, as Without Sanction, but the first variant of him was that third book. And so then when I wrote to write, went to go to write Without Sanction, I knew who the protagonist was already. I'd spent a book in his head. I kind of understood how he thought. And I knew what some of the things wrong were wrong that I'd done the, with those others. And so it, it positioned me in a much better place with the fourth book. And, and when that book sold, there were very, very few edits to it. And part of that was because I had done the time and learned the things in the previous three books that I needed to read. So the... I do look at them. Uh, I dug one out the other day and, and went through a couple pages and I'm like, man, this was bad. This was bad. But, but I mean, you got to look at it and say, what was that purpose of that book for me? Wasn't it was to teach me how to be a better writer. And, and hopefully it did. 
Well, I like it. You know, you said you, you thumb through your rejection letters and stuff. My favorite thing of podcasting when I, cause I send a lot of emails and, and, you know, like mm-hmm. trying to get people to come on. I like the ones that don't even respond to me. They're like, yeah, you know what? Yeah, we're good here. Thank you. We've had all of that that we can take. And I'm like, Oh, okay. you know, they don't even say it. So you'll, you'll write back a couple of weeks later. Hey, just checking in with you. And they're like, still not interested. Uh, you know, so it's, uh, I, I don't get to, uh, I just look at a blank screen and I go, okay, I remember mm-hmm. that guy. Yeah. So I, yep, I, yep. I, I understand what you feel, but you're right. You have to keep working at it. You've always got to yep. be either yep. growing or dying. One of the two, you got to be figuring out yep. what's the next thing I can do. What's the, what can I get more engaged with? What can I do this? Yep. And yep. I've heard you even I, say that about Matt, that you went and you wrote some Tom Clancy stuff and, and, and you mm-hmm. did it from a different perspective. And when you came yep. back, you missed Matt and you I were did. like, yeah, I, I missed this guy. I miss writing this stuff, which I think is a great thing because if you're bored with it, everybody else is going to be bored. With Absolutely. It. Right. Absolutely. Right. You know, it was, so I'm working on my third, um, Matt book now and the way that that shaped up is that, when I turned in the outside man, I guess it was about a year ago. Um, my editor, who's Tom Colgan, is also the editor for the Tom Clancy series, and the so Tom he, uh, the Tom Colgan. Okay. That's right. That's what okay. he makes us call him there. The All Tom right. Colgan. All right. And so he gave me the uh, he gave me the opportunity to write the Tom Clancy Jack Ryan Jr. series. So that's the Target acquired one. But it took a while to work out the details for that. And so I was busy writing the third map book as we were doing it. And I had, you know, I don't know, 20 or 25,000 words or something like that. And then once we got the deal finalized, the Tom Clancy book came first. So I put all the Matt stuff on the shelf, you know, worked on the Tom Clancy one, turned that in. And now I'm back in the mat. And so this is one of the first times where usually when you read through your first draft, it's just horrific. And you're like, Oh my gosh, I don't even know if there's a story in here. Was I high when I was writing this? Like who even wrote this? I don't know. And so not only this time, not only, like I said, was it fun? Cause I'd missed Matt and I'd missed Matt's voice, but, and it was still a rough draft. So it still needed work, but you read it and you're like, this is pretty good. Like there are things in here. Cause now I've had nine months of distance where I haven't been thinking about the story and like, this is really funny, or this is a good setup here. Or, this is, and that's encouraging too, right? Cause you're starting to feel like there's some growth there as a writer. There's some things into your point before, you know, one of the surest ways, you know, that a scene is going wrong is if it's boring to you, because if it is boring to you, it is going to be horrific for the reader. And so as I'm reading this, I'm like, this is kind of interesting. I don't even remember what happens after this. And I want to go to the next page, which is probably a good thing. So it was, and it's, you know, I've talked with friends of mine who are much, much more successful than I am and and farther down the path. And they talk about, I have one friend who is insistent at one point, he's going to take a break in his series and just write a standalone book. That's something else. And I'm always like, you know, why do you want to do that? And he's like, I need to cleanse my palate. I need to set that aside and then come back to it. And that's what the Clancy book did for me is it gave me a while after, cause I'd been in Matt's head for, you know, the one book that hadn't sold the two books without sanction and the outside man that did. And now I'm writing really kind of the fourth book with Matt in it. And so having that period of time to cleanse my palate, if you will, by writing that Tom Clancy book was actually, 
it was really good for me, I think, because I came back to it. I missed it. I, I missed him. I was excited to start writing him again. So it's been kind of neat. Let's talk about the Tom Clancy thing for a minute, because <laughs> when you get this deal done, because they, they talk to you, um, yep. Tom talks to you and says, hey, look, we want you to do this. And mm -hmm. you, you, you start thinking about it. But when they tell you the deal's done, it's you mm -hmm. choosing you. Like, yep. what are you feeling? Like, man, I'm, I mean, terror. Like, well, okay. I, yeah, I get the terror <laughs> thing, but at any point, do you get a big head for even maybe 30, 45 seconds? Like, yeah, I made it. I'm here. Yeah. I did it. It really was, you know, the first time I sat down on my computer and wrote Jack Ryan on my computer. Yeah. I had to sit and think about that for a while. I'm like, I, I I cannot believe I get to write this guy. And this is, again, for me, the first book in this genre that I ever read was a Tom Clancy book. You know, that one, uh, Red Storm Rising, doesn't have Jack Ryan, but Hunt for the Red October, I read shortly thereafter, and which obviously does have him. And I couldn't believe it. You know, in, in Target Acquired, I pulled in some of the legacy characters to you, or even when. I'm in Jack Ryan Jr.'s head and he's thinking about John Clark. Like this is the guy who, you know, without remorse <laughs> went to town on drug dealers and, 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 in um, I think it's, uh, some of all fears or not. Anyway, it's like to have those characters sitting there and I'm just kind of casually tossing out their names as I'm writing what, what Jack Ryan is thinking. Jack Ryan Jr. is thinking is just, incredible you know and so it, it was certainly and, and tom um colgan for the i got to launch the outs or um without sanction right before covid and so we had this huge party and huge launch party and tom colgan was going to come down for it and couldn't because he had the flu but he sent this book that my wife kept hidden from me and then and then brought it out while we were doing the book launch and it was just um a made-up book cover um, that said Tom Clancy, and then it had my name on it. And she's like, here you go. And, you know, the first time I saw that, it just blew me away. I'm like, I can't believe my name is on the same book cover as that guy's name. And that, you know, the writer that I worshipped as a kid that I get to write in the universe that he created. And so it is, um, it, it's, it did give me, and it still gives me an incredible sense of awe, I don't get a big head for very long because nobody in my house thinks it's a very big deal. And so I'll walk around and say, I'm writing for Tom Clancy. And they're like, whatever, dad, just go back in your office and do <laughs> what you do back there. But it is, I mean, it, it's still, I still have to kind of pinch my, and, and Tom is really, really good at it. They're Tom Colgan, my editor, because there were a couple points where I'm like, I don't know if I can do this. Like, I don't know. Because when you go back, I started going back and reading the old Tom Clancy stuff. And I read, obviously, a bunch of the ones that Mike Madden, who'd written before me. And I would pick up the phone and talk to Mark Colgan, who writes the senior stuff. And then Mark Graney was kind enough to do it. And, like, it's it's more um, it's more like you feel like you're standing on the shoulders of giants, right? Both with Tom Clancy and the other writers. And it's, you know, in one hand, you talk about having a big debt head where you're like, I'm writing Tom Clancy. And the other, you're like, am I really good enough to do this? Like, cause these guys are freaking fantastic. And this is this iconic series. And is my name really good enough to be under his? And that's another one where, 
you know, I give I give my editor Tom Colgan a lot of crap, but he's fantastic with that, both as an editor and as the guy to put his arm around your shoulder and say, listen, he, he said, you know, one of his mystical gifts is being able to pick the right writer for the right project. And he's like, I chose you. You're the right writer. And it's not because I think you can mimic Tom Clancy. He's like, I don't want you to do that at all. I love your math books and I want you to bring some of that to this Tom Clancy one. That's why I chose you. He's like, I just want you to be you in this Tom Clancy universe. And so that, that helped quite a bit too, but there were still, you know, moments of sheer terror uh, along with all the incredible feelings of being able to write in that iconic universe. Well, you throw around names that you say just randomly. <laughs> I mean, John Clark, clear and present danger, yep. rainbow six, yep. Ding Chavez. Yep. I mean, yep. like, like that's the stuff. I mean, without remorse is going to be a TV show now. I mean, mm -hmm. th Michael B. You, Jordan. Yeah. Yeah. When you say that, you know, you casually throw these names around, there's a huge legacy that comes behind these. There is. And, and so it's interesting because, um, Tom Colgan is kind of the guardrails for that. And so one of the things in in my book, there was a scene that I had where it was honestly more of what Matt would do versus what Jack Ryan Jr. would do. And it was a scene between Jack Ryan Jr. and John Clark. And he just brought the hammer down on me. And he's like, nope. He's like, nobody talks to John Clark that way. And he's like, nobody puts John Clark in the corner. And oh, it was, so you know, and it was, that. it was right, man. Cause he's, he's like, this is this iconic character. He wouldn't put up with this and Jack wouldn't talk in any, and I was like, you're absolutely right. And so I went back and rewrote it or there, you know, it just, I hadn't, I had, you know, not to give too much away about the book, but I thought it was going to be only about Jack and I wasn't really going to have any of the other characters in it. It was going to be a very, you know, slick down version where it's just focused on what Jack's doing, but those, I mean, they're, they're giants, right? And so they have a way of inserting themselves, whether you want them to or not. And the, you know, the first, you know, there are a couple scenes between Jack Ryan Jr. and John Clark. And once I got those right, you're like, I can't believe I just wrote a, you know, a wrote a book or a scene with John Clark in it, or I'm talking about when Ding Chavez and, or there's a scene, you know, with Jack Ryan Sr., and so it is, it is, um, I don't know that I did really did have that sense of awe as I was writing them. And, and, and you're like, I can't believe that I'm tossing in names that were, and, and I, and I, I think maybe hopefully it did. You'll have to be the judge of it when you read that book, but hopefully my sense of awe came through the pages. Cause there are things where there's a part in there where Jack is thinking to himself about, you know, who taught him how to be a good agent runner and, and run run assets and stuff. And I threw in Mary Pat Foley. I'm like, this is the lady who in Cardinal in the Clem in the Kremlin does a brush pass with a Russian defector at a hockey game while the KGB is watching and pulls it off. Like as her sons are playing hockey, she does this this brush pass with the um the the uh Russian asset in the Kremlin and stuff. And so I was like, that was such an iconic scene in that book. I'm going to pull it in and mention it in my book. Because who knows if I ever get to write this again and this gets to be 
hopefully it's a great story. But honestly, part of it is like a fan. I'm a fan and I get to write this book. So it's, you know, part of it is like my love letter to this series is like, I'm going to grab as many cool things that I loved as a kid. And I actually, in my little writing journal, I have a heading that says cool stuff about Tom Clancy books. And I would write in there. I love this. I love this. And I'm like, how many of these can I pull into this book or how many can I reference in it and stuff? And so I don't, it was a blast, man. And it was, and hopefully I get to do more of them. But man, if that, if that was the only one I ever get to do, I got to write John, John Clark in a book. I got to do that. I mean, that's incredible. I still can't believe I get to do that. So it was, it was pretty, it was intimidating and it was incredible all at the same time. Biggest accomplishment, your books or being selected to do Tom Clancy? Man, that's a hard question. I think, well, I'll say it this way. I would not have gotten the chance to, to write the Tom Clancy if it were not for my books. Um, and I think, you know, mine certainly aren't on the same level as the Clancy books, but you know, I, I feel like when you're, when I'm using, when I'm writing in Tom Clancy, you certainly, you know, again, you're standing on the shoulders of giants, right? There's everybody loves John Clark and that doesn't have anything to do with me. Everybody loves Jack Ryan Jr. That doesn't have anything to do with me. It's you know, my, a friend of mine is Josh Hood and he writes the one of the Robert Ludlum series and he kind of likened it to getting asked to write that series is like your dad tossing you the keys to his Corvette. And so your job is to go out, show it around on the street a little bit and bring it back without any new dings in the in the, in the side when, when you're done. Right. And I feel like that's what Tom Clancy is. My books, I, the point I feel the proudest about is kind of what we're talking about before where somebody who reads my book says, hey, my dad usually liked this book. I don't even read them. I read it beforehand, and now I'm a fan of your books, and I can't wait the next one. I mean, that's one of my favorite ones, and it's about, you know, this uh, written by a woman who who clearly doesn't read these, and she loved my book, and she came back, and she gave me, like, four stars for Without Sanction. She came back and read The Outside Man and gave me five stars for that, and she's like, it's even better. I love this, and that's what I feel the most proud about because the for the Tom Clancy book, it's a different feeling. It's like a feeling of responsibility because there are so many dedicated readers out there and so many people like I did who grew up with this. And it's this responsibility of I can't let these people down. Like I got to tell a story that's worthy of Tom Clancy's name and worthy of these characters that created. With mine, it's much more of I feel like I'm, I'm you know, that entrepreneur that little scrapper of, hey, can I create something that people love and are willing to come back to over and over again? And, and you know, I, you know, that someday I can have a book series that maybe lives on beyond me or that people are still reading or still talk about, you know, one of the, the great thing about this genre too, and not just the, is people like um, Alistair McClare who wrote like Ice Station Zebra and the Guns of um, Navarone and where Eagles Dare or Jack Higgins who wrote, you know, the Eagle has landed and all these, like there are these books that are, you know, now written about world war two that people still come back and read because they're such good writing and it's such good stuff that I remember giving my son the first time the Eagle has landed. I'm like, you will love this book. Like read this, this will stay in your head. And 
And that's what you hope for, right? Is that you create as a writer, you create something that's a legacy, something that people keep coming back to book after book after book. But I would argue with you that you have that same responsibility with Matt. Mm-hmm. You have built this character. Absolutely. You have built this world for your readers and you can't, you cannot take that lightly now, especially no. when you go from four star to five star and, and you see that you're yeah. really starting to gain that. I don't know if I'd say cult following, but you're starting to get that following. Yeah. I would argue that you have just a bigger responsibility to make sure you continue to make those people happy. Yeah, I, that's absolutely right. And that's something, another thing that Tom Colgan told me because they writers always, or editors will say that the, they can tell if a writer is going to be have longevity or not in his or her career by their second book, right? Because your second book, your first book, you've had your entire life to write. The second book is the first one that you have to write, both write on that year timeline. And it has to be, maybe you've only had one idea your entire career and you write that book and it sells. Now you got to write another book and have another idea and do it in a year. And so when I was talking to Tom Colgan about it, he said, you know, one of the things or the thing in his opinion that separates a good writer from a great writer is a great writer will con- will continuously push the envelope with every single book they write, even when they don't have to anymore. And he actually used Mark Greeny as an example. Mark Greeny is an incredibly successful writer. He has the Gray Man series. He's got Red Metal. He's got in Gray Man's getting made into a Netflix show. And so his, the, and I, the one escapes me, his current book is called Relentless. I think maybe the one before it was One Minute Out. One Minute Out, Martin decided to write in first person. Never written in first person before. He could have written probably the same sort of gray man book he'd written, you know, eight times before. And everybody still would have bought it because they're vested in the series and stuff. But he pushes himself every time he writes a new book. He does something di- different. That time he decided to write in first person. You know, with um, Red Metal, he decided to take on a co-writer. He's Because he's not, even though he's incredibly successful as a writer, he isn't content to rest on his laurels. He's going to push the boundary every single time, and that's why he's a great writer. And so I think, to your point, it's both your responsibility that you owe to your writer, to your readers, and one of the ways that you live up to that and keep the series being fresh is you don't just mail it in. You just don't write another episode. You challenge yourself as a, as a writer. And so for me, for Target Acquired, the, um, the last probably 75 pages of Target Acquired is the hardest thing I've ever written as a writer. And I had this crazy idea from multiple points of view that all culminated in this incredible climax And I actually threw it all out at one point. I'm like, it's too hard. I can't do it. And it was like, you know, Tom Colgan whispering in my ear is the bad angel or maybe the good angel, depending on what your thing is. is If you want to be a great writer, you got to push yourself further. And so for about three weeks, my entire office floor was just covered in three by five index cards because this climax that happens, it all of the point of views intersect at the same time. There are a couple events that all of them see And I couldn't even figure out how to make it work. And I did it and did it and did it. And when I, when I turned it in, that was one of the things that Tom Colgan loved the most. And he's like, I love this sequence and stuff, but what you did, I almost threw it out, which would have been the easy thing to do, right. Or the safest thing to do. 
And so I, I think that's part of it. I think like what you said, there's that responsibility to your readers. And I think there's also that responsibility yourself that you got to push yourself with every single book and figure out how you're going to make yourself a better writer in this one. Well, was it just that it was so, was it complex the last part of it? Was it just because, you know, in the outside, man, I don't know how you could get more complex than we'll, just say, uh, we'll say the Osprey scene. Okay. We'll, 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 we'll leave it at that. But like, I don't know how you could get more complicated. Well, it's, and I gotta, I don't know how to, to talk to you about it with, um, out giving it away, but yeah. And, and, and we and definitely don't want that. what you're saying. No, 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 no. I, and I appreciate what you're saying, but the, the Osprey, um, one and was, was really, really hard to write. And I had this vision of what I wanted to do and hopefully managed to pull it all together. But the, the Clancy one, the nearest I can tell is that if you can imagine the Osprey event and then it splits and then it like comes back together and it's, it's craziness. It, it's craziness, but I think, I think it works. We'll see. You'll have to tell me, you'll tell me if it works. You'll, right. you'll write me an email and say, you should have stuck with just one Osprey. That's it. <laughs> well, I think uh, I think one's I think one's enough. They have a very high crash rating. So, uh, so I think what you're saying though is I, I think you've done that. Would you agree that from without sanction to the outside, man, you really ramped it up another level to yeah. kind of take it from? I mean, uh, of course you have action yeah. and everything, but you kind of this is kind of. Uh, I mean, you even mentioned John Wick in the book. Mm-hmm. He's yep. he's he's quickly turning into a character, yeah, of that nature where it's uh, it's not just raw vengeance. It's not anything. It's calculating. Yep. It's all those kind of things. But yep. would you agree that as the books are going on, he's ramping up more and more? Yeah, and it's not so a lot. Like I said, I'm the crazy guy that reads all my reviews. And a lot of the reviews I got from um, Without Sanction were, hey, it was a great book in the beginning, but what really sucked me in was from the hey-ho scene on. So when when that happens for the rest of the book, people would say, you know, I can't put it down. And so I read enough of those that I pulled it apart and said, okay, what did I do? Like, what did I do from the hey-ho scene on that people liked? And then conversely, what did I do building up to that that wasn't as, excuse me, compelling perhaps as that? And so I really tried to do that in The Outside Man is to pull that action up front instead of having a slower burn. But what I was very, very wary about, so even like the John Wick series, which I'm, I'm a fan of too, but I would say for me personally, what I'm trying to write, the John Wick series goes too far for me because I think there are parts of that, that movie where it's almost overwhelming, where he goes from, from scene to scene and it's really, really hard to, to not lose, to not lose, not the surprise factor, but that the, the readers like, or the viewers like, okay, what else is he going to do now? What else? And, and, you know, they, they call the, um, the John Wick series like gun foo or something, right? Like it's, yeah. 
part of what makes it unique is it's so over the top and the fight scenes are so over the top and everything that you're you're expecting it but not necessarily because you think John Wick is in danger maybe as much as you want to see the new inventive way they're going to film this next sequence or something you know what you know he has the one with he and Holly Berry and the dogs are incredible and then he's got you know another one right and it's just more and more and so I think mine Again, you know, we were talking before the preview about movies and how big of an influence movies have on me. You know, I'm an 80s kid and 80s movies have a huge influence on me. And I think one of the best thrillers is or thriller movies or movies of that era is the Die Hard movie, right? Where it has that great mix of incredible um, action scenes but then there's spacing in there enough time to get you to recover right so you have you know have the funny parts you have bruce willis on the phone with with the black cop that he's made friends of and they're talking about being dads and raising little kids and then he's got you know another climactic scene but it has enough spacing in there for you to cool off a little bit again and then it you hits you with another crazy scene or something and so that's what I'm trying to steer more towards Die Hard, I guess is is what I would say, is to to have that action in up front because Die Hard's probably if you look at that in in my MFA program, one of the modules on was film, and we actually broke Die Hard down beat by beat, like what happens. And so if you look at that movie beat by beat, it's still you know I would bet within the first fifteen minutes or something is where the Nakasaki scene happens and everything gets launched off so it's not like there's a whole big slow burn to it right it happens pretty quick and in fact there's little bits of micro conflict that's happening the entire time in there right you know there's something wrong between with he and his wife from the first interaction because somebody asked him you coming out to california you married and he's like well kind of right and so there's this great little devices that build conflict and he and his wife kind of get in the seat in a fight right before the terrorist attack and so, the, I mean, the writing in there is masterful because it keeps you on the scene, but it isn't and it isn't just straight back to back gunfights. It feels that way because it's so intense. But if you look at the beats of the movie, it's very much those dips and valleys. And so what I'm anxious about doing unintentionally is nothing but peak, 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 because then by the end, when you get to the climax, it's like, the readers, you know, they have adrenal failure at that time. There's so much that they've done that they can't do it anymore. Well, I, I think I should clarify when I say he's turning into a John Wick character. I think that as the book goes along, not necessarily, not necessarily that there's action, 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 but he is coming a more, he's becoming a more physical person. Mm, gotcha. More no, physically interactive with his environments and his scenes. And even, the other characters that are introduced in there. And when you talk yep. about like that John Wick, where you talk about they introduce Halle Berry and Lawrence Fishburne and mm -hmm. all these people, mm -hmm. they almost become a part of him. And you can look at like the manager of yep. the hotel. That's yep. the way yep. I feel. Not necessarily that it's just action, action, yep. action, gotcha. but, but Matt is becoming a very physical person. Like he is becoming yep. a, yep. I, I would almost say a real life character. Like he is a real life person yeah. by, because not only is there action, but you're seeing emotion from him. You're seeing all of mm -hmm. his thoughts going through his head, being a first person. And so you see a mental and physical change over the book of the outside man. Yeah. 
And yeah, so I appreciate that. Yeah, I, I want to clarify that. Not that it's just action, but I, I believe <laughs> that Matt is becoming a very, very, very visceral character. And that's a good that's thing. Good. I, I think that's a good thing in books because that's how we go from books to movies. Because if you can't yep. Yep. if you can't make that transition over, it'll never happen. So they have to be very visceral. Number yep. two that I want to point out is Die Hard is not the best of the series. I understand what you're <laughs> saying. Die Hard 2 is the better of them. Uh, and I understand what you mean, because if you look at the diehards and we'll go to what are, what are they on? Like five now or six. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you yeah. know, he was doing things that were a little crazy in Nakatomi Plaza yeah. and all that kind of stuff. He's jumping on a jet by the fifth yeah. one. And it's, yeah. it's too much where you're like, okay, that's yep. not even that's real. Right. And, and so that's right. It pulls you out. Of it. And so, mm -hmm. I understand what you're saying with that, where it's just action on action on action, because it's yep. not fun because there's nothing that ever changes. You don't get any, yep. not even, I wouldn't say physicality, any mentality to the characters. Yep. No, I agree. Like the, uh, we, I, I, I forced my, my wife cause all the kids love Die Hard now that we watch it on Christmas Eve. We have a and, um, Plaza party every year. Love it. Love it. And the, the great part of that movie, the final resolution is the most powerful, isn't when he saves Holly. It's when the black cop overcomes his fear and is able to draw his weapon and use it and save them at the very end. Like, that's the final resolution. And the reason why that's so powerful is because of the scenes where Bruce Willis has with the cop when they're on the radio and like, hey, tell me about your family. You're a great cop. Why aren't you still on the street? Well, I have this thing where I accidentally shot a kid and I can't draw a weapon again. And that seems like a B story that is below, but that is actually the final climax, right? Is where you see this whole thing come full circle and that's the human side of it. Like that's a very believable and everything that happens in Nakatomi Plaza, the, hey, we're going to take C4 and strap it to a chair and take it out the floor of a building or something is over the top, but the viewer forgives you that because it's interesting and because there's the human element in there that's so powerful and so real, right? You could strip that away and just make it a story about between Bruce Willis and this cop, and it would still be very, very believable, and it would resonate with that. And so that's what, and I appreciate you saying that because that is absolutely what I'm going for with this series is that there are there things that happen to Matt that are over the top? Absolutely. You know, there's some there's some Nakatoma, Nakatoma Plaza moments in there where he blows out the floor of the building and kills the bad guys. But I think what I contrast it with a lot is if you look at movies, which I love too, don't get me wrong, like the Fast and Furious movies, the the, the spinoff they had with Vin Diesel and uh, what's yeah. the guy's name? Jason Stantham, yeah. right? Yeah. I, so funny, such a show. good movie, but... Hobbs and Shaw, yeah. So the end of it where Vin Diesel's got like a helicopter in one hand and a Humvee in the other, and he's pulling them together. And at that happen. point, I'm like, yeah. If you it eat could, 10, it could, sure, calories it a day, that can happen. <laughs> but I think like that's what I, I'm, I'm willing to walk the line and push the edge, but I'm always going to steer more towards Die Hard than I am Fast and Furious and stuff because I'm not – I'm not, I want it to be, I know it's over the top, but I think the reader will forgive parts of it because it's so much fun, but I'm never going to have Matt. I say that now, maybe, maybe I shouldn't wear a helicopter in one hand, Humvee in the other, and he's curling them together and stuff. And I think, and that, not that there's anything wrong with that, but I think you as the writer have to decide 
what is it that you're trying to do? You know, what are you going for? Because another, like one of my other favorite writers is Daniel Silva and his books are much more in the vein of like the classic, like John LeClaire with the Taylor Tinker soldier spy and stuff like that. And so there's certainly things that happen to his protagonist, Gabriel Alon, which are may take some believable, but he is nowhere near what happens with Matt. Right. And so are there, there are different, um layers in that spectrum are different things and so you as as i think the writer have to say where do you want to fall in that and then you have to stay true to it because if you're writing a series that's die hard the reader isn't going to want to see tinker taylor soldier spy or they're not going to want to see the fast and furious one they're going to want to to i think to see that you're staying true to that series and kind of the world building and the boundaries that you made up in the beginning of it i love how you keep calling it the fast and furious one <laughs> uh, all right so we've talked about how big a uh, movie fan you are that you mm-hmm. grew up on them let's talk about 80s films for a little bit we're gonna have a trivia at the end don't worry we'll work into it but let's talk about it so favorite 80s movie and it doesn't matter what it is what's your favorite 80s movie top gun okay i did not expect it to come that fast why is top gun your favorite movie yep so what what drives um without sanctioners kind of the backbone of without sanction is the relationship between matt and frodo these two male characters who are who are friends who are comrades in arms and who are more than just brothers because of what they've been through. Because, you know, typically, uh, you know, in law enforcement, it's the same way. You see that with with partners who have been together forever, with people who have been in combat. And so what I loved about Top Gun was, again, what drove that relationship in that movie was between Maverick and Goose. And so you had these amazingly funny, outlandish, over-the-top, obviously I was a pilot, they're pilots, this great story, but at the core of it is that relationship. And my favorite movies and stories like Top um, Die Hard that we talked about before is the relationship between Bruce Willis and, and um, the other guy. If you look at um, Lethal Weapon, it's the relationship between Mel Gibson and Danny Glover. If you, Another one of mine is Bad Boys, where you have Mills, Will Smith and Martin Lawrence. Like I love those things where it's two guys who have this shared history together who are in this job who have families outside but there's something about that relationship that transcends all the other ones in in their in their lives and and i think top gun is probably the epitome of the that movie i yeah i would uh i would i think i would agree on that there's a i i think that there is very much merit to that about Top Gun, but I think that in in eighties movies, and it was interesting that you said that to me that you don't want to be too over the top. But I I think in in all my <laughs> movie experience that that's what the eighties were all about, just to be yeah. batshit crazy. Like yeah. let's talk about. Yeah, I know yeah. one of your favorites is Commando. <laughs> it opens with him cutting down a tree and carrying a tree back to his log cabin. <laughs> I mean, you, you can't get more a- over the top than that. He smells that the enemy a- coming. He, that was, um, 
It was, I think that may have been Arnold's first, other than Conan the Barbarian, that was like his first kind of breakthrough movie. And so they were trying to figure out how to showcase him as a persona and, and his incredible strength and stuff. But it was still, I think, you know, it resonates. I loved it as a kid because you, you see that movie and you're like, yeah, look at this tough commando doing all these things. And then you watch it later as a father and you're like, what father we talked about before about what you love in a protagonist is them being able to do what you wish you could do. And that scene, right. Where they, that's, that's a young Alyssa, Alyssa Milano, I believe is his daughter in it. And the scene where he comes back and, and finds that they've captured him and the kidnappers like, now you're going to have to deal with me. And he's like, blows that guy away. And then is chasing him down the thing like that. It's such a good, you know, it's such a good vehicle for you to live out what you wish you could do if you were a father and some some dirt bag stole your little girl or something. And I, I think that's one of those things that makes that movie powerful. Well, it's interesting that you say that because that particular scene that you're talking about might or might not appear in a book. And I actually <laughs> I actually thought of that in my head. Whenever he says we have to work together, right? And he says wrong and <laughs> yep. shoots you. I thought I like saw the whole scene in my head. I'm not saying that it's in a book. I'm saying that it could possibly be. It could possibly be. It might be. <laughs> so what is it about? Because if you talk to a lot of writers, they, they say mm -hmm. that, that their background is books. That's what they base their stuff on. Yeah. You're, I think you're the first writer that I've heard say, no, a big influence on me is movies. Yeah, books are too, uh, don't get me wrong, I, I certainly have a huge part of it that's books, but people don't go around quoting books, right? And they, in there, in my house, <laughs> negative ghostwriter. Yes, yes. <laughs> negative ghostwriter is something that's said all the time. And the kids, you know, the kids are repeating things. They don't even know why it's right. But there's something with that, 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 or, you know, another one of mine, and this doesn't fit the genre another, I love Jane, James Cameron's movie and aliens. Like how many different great quotes are there from, Hudson oh. and aliens talking, right? And so game over, there's man. something game over, man. Put her in charge. I think we should nuke it from orbit just to be safe. So, I mean, you get, you get, there's something about movies that just grabs you and that you, that you, you talk in that vernacular afterwards that you do it. And it's just, that's this great storytelling, right? That's great storytelling that in an hour and a half, because you spend much more time with a book than you ever do with a movie. Absolutely. And so there's something about that in that hour and a half that grabs you. And for the rest of my life, I'm going to say negative ghost rider, the pattern's full. Right. And that's, I don't, I don't know what it is, but man, I want, I want to be able to write that way. I want to be able to write so that people are, quoting mat lines 20 years from now <laughs> did you uh ever when you were a pilot did you ever buzz the tower or uh, <laughs> i did or, not buzz the tower or hang but out with penny benjamin or anything like that I, I did not but my closest story to that is when you're uh when you're a young lieutenant they put you with one of the more experienced warrant officers right and it's part of it's to teach you how to be a better pilot part of it is because when you're a lieutenant, you're moving, you have a platoon you're in charge of. And so you're moving aircraft in different places and doing relief on station and, and concentrating on the fight. And so you want a really good pilot who could fly single seat 
basically, so you can concentrate on what you need to do. And so I was, we were one of the missions, my first assignment right out of flight school was in Korea. And the mission set for Korea is that if the balloon went up, um, they, North Korea would flood South Korea with special operations guys. And they train these people like human cruise missiles. And so they'd give them a target to go kill in South Korea and send them on their way. And so they would have these really fast boats. And so these boats are small and fast and it's hard for the Navy to get them. And they're small enough that it's, that it's hard for a fast mover to get them. So somebody came up with the great idea of we're going to send Apaches out over the water to shoot up these boats. And, and so Apache pilots are very fond of shooting things up. And so we were quite happy with that mission and would go out and, and practice it. But one of the things you'd have to do is you'd have um, the traffic pattern, which was pretty, pretty high. And then you'd have to immediately come down and, and go over the water when you transition to it. And so we were up, I can't remember which um, port we were at. It was, it was right on the edge of the water. And so the traffic pattern was a couple thousand feet. And I made the terrible mistake of asking my backseater. I said, Bill, how are we going to lose all this altitude? And as soon as I said that, all of a sudden I was looking at the ocean through the top of our canopy and we were going and just, he turned it over and, and, and brought it back about a hundred feet above the ground. But that's my closest to being inverted with a Russian MIG, you know, in proven foreign relations. There you so go. that's all I got. <laughs> uh no that's uh that's pretty good i i gotta say did you get sick on that one i did not i was uh he did it quick enough and i was dumbfounded and then laughing as i'm watching this go and then forever <laughs> this is that you learn pretty quickly never to ask questions like that because you you're not going to be prepared for the answer now word around the campfire is you're a huge uh firebirds fan um, so. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> so can uh, we talk about the masterpiece that is Tommy Lee Jones and Nick Cage oh, Firebird and what it meant to you in your career? Uh, so I saw that mag magnificent piece of, of cinematic something or another when I was maybe uh, 14 or 15. It seems like it came out shortly thereafter of Top Gun, and it, it was kind of billed as, right, it was the Army's version of Top Gun, and not just the Army, but Army Apache pilots, which I immediately knew that I wanted to be. Cause which is a Apache tagline, the Army's version yes. of Top Gun. <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> um, yes. And so uh, I saw it, and with everyone else the five people in the theater that that day were vastly <laughs> underwhelmed um by that movie and then what i didn't realize is it was all shot at fort hood and so i was stationed at fort hood and when i showed up they had i think they had like the movie poster of it and all crossed out and everything and part of my in briefing in the unit is you may or may not have seen this um, the name of this movie is banned in this organization. And so if you have to refer to it, you will call it the movie, which shall not be named. And so that was, that was how we referred to firebirds if we did it all. But yeah, somehow the Navy got Tom Cruise and Kelly McGillis and Val Kilmer and freaking, we got Nick Cage and what was her name? Sean something or another. And, and Tommy Lee Jones. So uh, Sean, uh, oh, I can't remember. Yeah. Yeah, that was uh, that was before 
a lot of good decisions were made, I guess. <laughs> so your characters in the in the books, they they do a lot of quotes to each other. So I thought I would mm -hmm. give you a little movie quote trivia. And I want to see if you can get it because you you would agree they talk in quotes a lot to each other. They do have a lot. All right. Yep. Are you ready? I'm ready. Hit me. You need to tell me what movie it came from and if possible who said it. Mm, all right. All right. I'm serious and don't call me Shirley. <laughs> oh man. Oh. Is It's not Would you like me to say it one more it? time for you? I yeah, am serious and don't call me Shirley. And don't call me Shirley. I don't know that one. That was Leslie Nielsen in Airplane. Oh, I said the Naked Guns. I knew it was Leslie Nielsen. All right. That's all right. We're 0 for 1. Snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? Nah, Indiana Jones, Harrison Ford. Which one? I believe it was the Temple of Doom. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Ah, but I know the scene. All right. It's the cobras. He falls in. All right, all right. I get half credit for that. Okay, I'll give you half credit. We came, <laughs> we saw, we kicked its ass. We, I don't know that one either. Bill Murray and Ghostbusters. Mm, I can see him saying it now. All right. This one's going to have a little bit of uh, something that you can look at too. Okay. All right. All don't right. mess with the bull, young man. You'll get the horns. I don't know that one either. I'm that striking is, out. That is uh, Richard Dick Vernon or... Paul Gleason in The Breakfast Club. Mm. All right. This isn't going as well as I thought it would. No, no. All right. I pretty much got five movies I can quote from, and none of them are this, apparently. All right. We'll try one more. <laughs> one more. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. Nothing. It's Matthew Broderick from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Mm. Mm. Mm, mm, mm. all right all right we might cut this from the episode uh <laughs> <laughs> since i struck out <laughs> all right so what's next for dawn so the the outside man just came out um Target acquired the first Tom Clancy one comes out in two months in excited. June. I'm excited for you to read it. And then I am frantically working on mat number three right now, which is due the 15th of July. So that Do is we have a me. working title. Can we uh, get we're that? close to one, but I, I don't think I can tell you yet. All right. All right. We're close. I, I got to try. I got to try. All right. I appreciate it. Well, guys, I think that's going to be it for this episode. I, I had a great time <laughs> with you, Don, man. Uh, I'm so glad you came on. Fantastic book. I'm so happy for your success. Uh, Thank you. It's, it's awesome that you're in the Tom Clancy world now. You've got Without Sanction, The Outside Man. It's doing phenomenally well. You can pick it up 
almost anywhere. Audible, Amazon, uh, you have, yep. uh, let's see, you have Amazon, you have uh, Penguin Books, you have Google, you have, there's, there's just a ton of ways that you can pick this up. Uh, I yep. would also recommend to people not only to pick up the book, but pick up the audio version because I think it uh, gives yeah. a whole nother level to this character. Yeah. Uh, it, it, yep. it puts you in a lot of different scenarios and, and it makes you think of him a little different than if you're just reading it. Um, they can go to your website. Yep. Yep. It's donbentleybooks.com. Uh, they can find out all about you there. They can order their books from there. They can find out synopsis to books. They can find out what you're doing, everything. If you want more of me, guys, you can always go to Facebook to the group, the DTD podcast. We post all of the audio versions and the video versions of this show. You can catch me on YouTube at the DTD podcast, and you can catch me on Twitter at doublespeak DJ. That's going to be it for this week. Don, thank you so much for coming in. I've, I've had a blast with you tonight, um, and I hope all the success to you in the world. Me as well, Dustin. Thank you so much for having me. It was awesome. No problem. Guys, that's Don. I'm DJ. This has been the show. We'll catch you on the next one.